Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy uh, that your word would turn us to the Lord Jesus and we would grow in our trust in him for life. And Father, we pray uh, that hearing your word, understanding it, believing it, we will be equipped to live for him. We would know it's good work in our lives and that you would help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When you've been a Christian uh, for a while or when you mainly hang around Christians, it can come as something of a shock to be reminded that not everyone likes Jesus. And you tend to think, if only they could get to know him better, know him as you do, and that would change their minds. If they would come to know that he lives and he's kind and faithful, forgiving, powerful, I mean, what's not to like about Jesus? But then you remember, or you should when prompted, that in the Gospels there were people who knew Jesus, who had met him, some who had eaten with him, and didn't like him, in fact, hated him. What wasn't to like about Jesus then? And this morning we're going to look at why some of Jesus' contemporaries had no time for Jesus and how Jesus responded to that. And we're going to do this to give you, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, an opportunity to reflect on your own reasons for not believing to consider whether the issue in your relationship to Jesus is actually you, not Jesus. And if you're a believer, it's an opportunity to test whether the Jesus you believe in is the Jesus of the Gospels, not a Jesus limited by your familiarity with him. And to be reminded both of Jesus' offensiveness and his goodness. Now we're going to rejoin the gospel story of Jesus with one such group of people who didn't like Jesus, the inhabitants of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. At this point we're about halfway through the gospel story, so already we've had this heard of Jesus' birth and temptation, we've experienced his teaching, we've heard reports of his mighty works, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind... And prior to this, Matthew has repeated for us some of Jesus' parables. And in the Gospel, we've already encountered a group of people who really didn't like Jesus, the religious leaders and the party of piety, the Pharisees, who want people to attribute Jesus' work to the devil and have started plotting to kill Jesus. But Jesus, after teaching, returns to the town of Nazareth. We pick up the story with Jesus teaching in the synagogue in his hometown. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters, aren't they all with us? Now you'd expect the 1,600 to 2,000 inhabitants of Nazareth to be more like the Serbians welcoming back Novak Djokovic, wouldn't you? But, you know, He's a local boy made good, achieving remarkable things in the wider world. 
And they acknowledge that, verse 54. They acknowledge his wisdom, the depth of his teaching and his power and mighty works because those things are undeniable. But rather than rejoicing in his success, they're actually, verse 57, offended by him. They stumble at his greatness. Now why? Well, you've heard them. They're saying, we know him. We know his family. He's one of us, no better than us. This wisdom and miraculous power couldn't belong to him by right. And there's a hint. You know, so where does he get all these things? A hint that they think his possession of these things is <coughs> slightly suspect. Comes from some kind of shonky source. For the inhabitants of Nazareth, Jesus can't be anything but the familiar Jesus, the carpenter's son. Who he is and what he can do has to be kept within the limits of their expectations and to suggest he is anything more is offensive to them. And, you know, we can relate to Jesus in the same way. We may have formed an image of Jesus at some time in our lives, maybe even in our childhood, from all kinds of sources, you know, our family or schooling or Sunday school or even a musical. And Jesus can never be anything other or more than the Jesus we've got used to. And so we might think of Jesus as, well, depending on our upbringing, some kind of family mascot present at family events and there to help our family life be better. Or depending on your age, some kind of popular hippie revolutionary with a message of radical love or just a kind friend to share your troubles with or an occasional moral consultant. And that's all he's allowed to be. That's the place he has to have in your life. And so there are things he can't be heard to say that might challenge the role you've assigned him, whether it's his demand you give up all to follow him or be wise by doing all that he teaches, whether that's keeping your word or being sexually chaste or his opinion that he is Lord, the boss of your life. There are things you can't hear Jesus saying and there are areas of life outside his concern or help. You've got him in a box like the people of Nazareth and you'd be offended like them if he claimed more authority over your life, over your thinking, over your speech, if he asked to be trusted for more. We can be like the people of Nazareth and just as it was to their loss, verse 58, Jesus couldn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief, so it will be to our loss. There's a cost in trying to keep Jesus small within the limits you allow him, a cost of not trusting him as the one who is, as his words and works reveal him to be, the Lord of all. And that cost is never knowing the fullness of his power to help and save. Well, in response to their questioning, Jesus quotes a proverbial saying, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his household. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's just a prophet, but that his experience is like the prophets, people sent from God with God's message, like their experience because the source of Jesus' wisdom and mighty works is not in his upbringing or his family connections or his training. Anything his neighbours could see or identify 
No, the source of his wisdom and mighty works is from God himself. And in quoting the saying, Jesus is asking them to consider whether their own reaction itself mightn't suggest that he's from God, that there's more than they will let him be. He's giving them an opportunity, you see, to reconsider him. For Jesus is more than a carpenter, and that is plain to many of his contemporaries who are seeking an adequate explanation for what Jesus is teaching and doing. People are talking about him. Later, the apostles will report that, you know, some seeing what he's doing say he's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or even like Herod saying he's John the Baptist. They're looking for a precedent, a category into which they can fit Jesus' activity. What is he? A teacher, a rabbi, a prophet? And Herod, starting to receive reports about Jesus, is also searching for some explanation of what he's hearing. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Now, this Herod is Herod Antipas, one of three Herods in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's the Herod of Jesus' birth in Matthew 2, Herod the Great, Antipas's father. And there is the Herod of Acts 12, the wormy one, Herod Agrippa I, Antipas's nephew. And then there's this Herod, Antipas, who's the tetrarch of the area in yellow, right, Galilee and Perea. That is, he's a ruler recognised by the Romans, but with a smaller dominion and less in status than a king, although he's sometimes called a king, the ruler of where much of Jesus' ministry is taking place in Galilee. And Herod is puzzled, as are others by what he's hearing Jesus is saying and doing. But his explanation, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead, is not all that convincing, is it? You know, Herod probably doesn't mean a resurrection to never die again like Jesus' actual resurrection. No, by resurrection he's talking about a a temporary appearance on earth of uh, the deceased John in this form, in the form of Jesus and That's why he has these powers, the powers of a spirit from the other side of the grave. But it's not convincing because Jesus was already active while John was alive, a detail probably unknown to Herod who is playing catch-up. But Herod's superstitious response gives Matthew this opportunity to introduce the story of the death of John the Baptist as he fills us in on why that explanation occurs to Herod. This is a deliberate interruption in the story of Jesus' ministry to go back to John's death that happened earlier. It's kind of like a flashback in a movie, giving vital information from the past that helps us understand why the characters are in the situation that they now find themselves in in the present. Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd, since they regarded John as a prophet. You see, this interruption does, as I said in the children's story, make us ask why Matthew's included the story here now. 
Well, amongst some of the early believers for whom Matthew was writing, there was a natural interest in what happened to John because some of the early believers in Jesus had first been disciples of John. But there's a bigger reason, and that's because the stories of John and Jesus are inseparable. At the beginning of the Gospel, we learnt that John is the one sent to prepare people for Jesus coming and witness to him, a voice crying in the wilderness. John's the herald of the king, Jesus the king. And later, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, our Lord says that the way people treat John will be the way people treat him. I tell you, Elijah's already come and they didn't recognise him. On the contrary, they did to him whatever they pleased. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. And later, when challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus links attitude to John's authority as a messenger of God to his authority. I'll only ask you one question. I asked him, where, where do you get this authority to do these things? He says, I'll ask you a question if you answer it for me. Then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven or was it a human origin? You see, the stories of John and Jesus are intertwined, part of the one work of God in sending his promised saving king. In telling us what happened to John, Matthew's giving us a prophetic picture of what will happen to Jesus, of what happens when the claims of God confront the powerful of this world. In introducing John's death, Matthew's also reminding us too of the biggest stage on which Jesus' ministry is being acted out. You know, so far, Jesus' ministry has been seen in his dealings with the people of the towns and villages of Galilee, the crowds of Jerusalem and their religious leaders. It's been very self-contained amongst the Jewish community and their religious debates. But here we're reminded that there is actually a bigger world in which Jesus' ministry is conducted, a world of politics and power, a world with direct connections to the pagan Roman world power. And the account reminds us that asserting the claims of God, as John did in saying Herod's marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, was not lawful, saying it's the law of God the king that all, even the powerful of this world, should obey, asserting the claims of God has real-world consequences. It can, as Herod feared, create unrest in the people, threaten the stability of political regimes. And yes, it can incite resentment and hatred in those with the power to silence those who come in the name of God. And as a prophetic picture story, the story of John's death exposes the motives of the world that will condemn Jesus to death before, long before, we get to the crowd pressuring Pilate to crucify Jesus. You see, what do we see here of the world and the motives of the powerful? Well, it's a world where there's no fear of God. Herod responds to John on the assumption God's not involved, that he doesn't have to think too hard about what God thinks of him. In Herod's view, all he has to worry about is what other people think, how they might react. This world 
you see, operates on the assumption that human power is all there is and human power alone determines the course of the world of people's lives. And so what governs Herod's action is fear of people, what they might think of him. He doesn't kill John, verse 5, because he feared the crowd. He proceeds to kill John, verse 9, to protect his reputation with his powerful guests. This is a power, the power of this world, that's actually insecure, isn't it? That's a prisoner, always to its own fears. Its actions motivated, as we see with Herod, by love of its own power and status and a determination to maintain them. And where those in power are concerned above all for what others think and for protecting their own power, what we see is that this is a power that can be used, manipulated, by those with personal agendas or a passionate hatred of God's servants, like Herodias or the religious authorities, to destroy their enemies. This is a really sad story. But here you have the end of Jesus' ministry prefigured. You see, he comes into the world, doesn't he, asserting that God is king, that his kingdom, his reign is near, calling not just Herod but all to repent and believe God's announcement. And like John, he irritates vested interests. He offends those whose sin he exposes, like the self-righteous religious. And they'll go on to incite his execution by a human power that recognises no other power, the power of Rome, a power that's anxious to protect the stability of its reign and whose only interest is in keeping power. Herod's dealings with John exposes why in the end some find Jesus so irritating. Having already decided that God's not involved in the world, they assess him solely in relation to their own interests. Will Jesus advance or hinder them? Will Jesus increase or decrease their happiness? Authority, you see, always lies with them. And so they'll never be able to be comfortable with a Jesus who is insistent on the authority of God. Insistent that his word should rule their lives and that they should change their lives and their thinking to conform to what God says. And maybe that's you. And what's it actually at issue? In your relationship to you, Jesus, is your prior belief that God is not involved in the world. And of course, that's a belief that Jesus' very presence challenges as we'll see. So what will Jesus do about this unbelief, the speculation about him and the implicit danger to himself in the fate of John the Baptist? Well, what we see is he will be Jesus and continue his ministry. But who is Jesus? Well, he's someone, as we see here, who continues to defy categorization and comparison. The feeding of the 5,000 men apart from women and children, which is recorded in all the Gospels, stresses two things. Firstly, Jesus' compassion. On hearing of Herod's speculation, what does he do? 
When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them and healed their sick. He wants to be alone. But the crowds watched the progress of the boat, which can be seen from the hills surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And travelling on foot, they actually get to the destination before Jesus. And on seeing them, Jesus could have got fed up, impatient, angry with their demands on him. I mean, that's the way most of us react to the demands of others when we're weary with a lot on our minds, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't. He has compassion and he heals. He doesn't turn away the needy. He considers the interests of others before his own. Unlike Herod, who was only thinking of himself. And the story also stresses that Jesus' spectacular power gives a better feast than Herod's debauched party. The dialogue with the disciples, you know, where Jesus says, Oh, you know, you feed them, and what have you got? And they say, Oh, only five loaves and two species. That dialogue is actually to emphasise the impossibility of feeding this number with the meagre resources they have. But Jesus multiplies the provision of creation, bread and fish to meet their need. The disciples witness the creative power of God at work to satisfy the hungry and there is no lack Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And this better and more wholesome feast, it's not given for the powerful, is it? It's actually given for the poor and needy, for the landless labourers of Galilee. Now, there are echoes in this feeding of events in the Old Testament of Elisha feeding the sons of the prophet with 20 loaves and of Moses and the provision of manna in the feeding in the wilderness. But those parallels actually just emphasise Jesus' difference. The numbers fed here dwarf those fed in two kings. This is an incomparably greater power personally possessed. And as Jesus says in John 6, It wasn't Moses who provided the manna, but God. And here Jesus himself provides for the crowds, distributing what they need through the apostles. Jesus, you see, is greater than the greatest prophets. And in this mighty work he seemed to be much more than a teacher and a rabbi. And he is no political revolutionary. He sends the crowds away and withdraws to pray immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowd and after dismissing them, he went up to the mountain to pray. How does Jesus respond to this threat, this unbelief? He acts in a way that makes the question of his identity more acute by not fitting easily into any of the people's existing categories. And he acts in a way that challenges the view that God is uninvolved in life, exercising himself, the creative power of God on earth. 
He challenges. And that challenge will go on as the gospel continues, won't it? Jesus will keep on asserting the claims of God on his people, on his world, by calling all to acknowledge God's rule, by submitting to himself God's king, submitting by listening to, trusting and obeying his word, obeying the word of the Son sent into the world by the Father. Jesus will keep on asserting the claims of God to a people who resent it. And Jesus will keep on demonstrating in his own person the presence of God in his world, demonstrating the presence of God to a people much like ours who want to think that God has left the world, left the world to them, and that their power alone rules. And that clash of sovereignties, that fight over who rules, over who should be listened to, will, as we know in the gospel, climax in Jesus' death at the hands of the Herods of this world acting to protect their power. But not just in his death. For the God who has the power of life, the creative power of life, will expose the powerlessness of those whose only power is the power of death, the power to kill. God will overturn their judgments, reverse their sentences. He will raise the Lord Jesus from the dead, raise him as the Lord who has the power to raise all who trust him to life at the last day, the power to judge and forgive. Some were just irritated by a Jesus who couldn't be contained within the limits they set for him, a Jesus who won't be silenced from making the claim of our creator God to rule his world, to rule our lives. But others found their hunger satisfied, their hurts healed in Jesus' compassion and power. Where did the difference lie? Well, it's in their faith, their faith in him. The irritated then and now are those who think they have Jesus' measure and then find a Jesus who won't be contained in the box they constructed for him, a Jesus who won't limit his call on their lives to what they feel comfortable with. They are those who only want Jesus to conform to what they will let him be. Someone who will endorse their interests, accept their passions, support their ambitions. But Jesus is Lord and expects us, everyone who confesses him as Lord, to abandon our interests to pursue his, to turn away from sinful passions, to do his goodwill, to have no ambition but to follow him. And then there are those who want to maintain that theirs is the only power and rule in their lives in the world, who love their power to do as they will. And they'll always find Jesus in the end intolerable. For Jesus, by his very presence, by the events recounted in the gospel, says God rules and God is the one who gives real life. Life's not found in loving ourselves and our own rule, but in abandoning our rule of our own lives to confess that Jesus, the living Lord, should be listened to, trusted and obeyed. He can give us life. 
And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, is that behind your problem with Jesus? His insistence that he rules, rules over every area of your life and its clash with your love of your own power to do whatever pleases you. You see, in that contest, you will never win. Jesus has life that can never be quenched and he alone can share that life. To love your own power like Herod is to embrace death. And why would you want to win? Because Jesus is good and he satisfies. Who are the satisfied? Well, we see here they're the hungry, the sick, the poor who come to Jesus to receive what Jesus in his compassion can and will give. And if we know ourselves truly, that is us all. Hungry for life, a life which we can't sustain in ourselves. Hungry for justice in a world where the powerful rule to protect their own power. Hungry for love in a world where we can be used and then left alone. Where we are all at different speeds and in different ways sickening to death. Unable to escape the reward of our sin, our ignoring, disobeying and rejecting of our creator God. And where we are all poor with nothing in ourselves by which we can buy life or forgiveness. To the hungry, to the dying, to the poor in spirit, the risen Jesus who has all authority, authority to judge and forgive the true king, gives in his compassion to all who come to him what he alone can give, forgiveness and life, And you see, your need is not a burden on him. In himself, he has more than enough to satisfy. For his is the power and the life and the love of the eternal God. You see, the gospel doesn't only ask you to work out who you think Jesus is, as it gives you the evidence that he is God with us come amongst us to save. See, the gospel also asks you to work out who you think you are. Do you think, for example, you're an equal with Jesus, someone who can insist on the right to set limits on who he can be and what he can do, someone who denies yourself the experience of his power to save? Do you think, for example, that well, you're your own sovereign, able to do as you will in the world, able to... Kill all who challenge your rule, metaphorically if not physically. A rule we have seen that's always insecure, in fear of others. And that's true even if all we rule is our little house. Or do you know yourself to be needy, in need of help, unable to sustain yourself in life, unable to heal your own wounds? unable to save yourself. You know, the gospel asks that question, who are you? And actually every graveyard gives you the answer if you cannot find it in your own heart. You are dying and will die forever unless you turn to Jesus who has life in himself. May God give us all grace 
not just to see Jesus' glory, but ourselves truly. So we come and we keep coming to him who has life in himself. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the face of unbelief, in the face of speculation and in the face of danger, Jesus keeps being who he is, your son, God with us, the one who can satisfy, who can give life and hope and love. Our Father, help us not to be blinded to our greatness, to his greatness and to our need. But seeing ourselves truly as your word reveals us to be, bring us to him, to take from his hand what he gives us, his own death, his life, the bread, the eternal bread, which has come down from heaven to give life to the world, to take from his hand the life he will freely give us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.